It was the morning of August 8, 1973, around 8.30 a.m., when the phone operator for the Pasadena police, Velma Lines, answered an unusual, albeit quick, call, where on any other regular morning, someone may have called to report a disturbance, or, at worst, an accident that needed to be investigated. The call Velma received that morning would be one she, nor the police, would soon forget. On the other end of the line was 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. Velma would barely finish asking if there was an emergency, before Henley blurted out, Y'all better come here right now, I just killed a man. After giving Velma the address, police arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena. From the outside of the home, you wouldn't have thought anything odd about the three teenagers sitting out on the porch, but just a few feet away, a 22 caliber pistol laid on the driveway. Elmer Henley stood up between the other two teens, pointed to the door, and told the police he was the one who made the call, and the man he killed in self-defense was dead inside the home. Inside, the body of Dean Coral lay naked in the hallway, shot six times with a 22 caliber pistol. But what appeared to be an open and shut case of a single homicide would soon reveal one of the worst serial killers in US history. Welcome to Myths, Mysteries, and Monsters. The world is full of myths passed down from generation to generation. Mysteries haunt us. Monsters hunt us. Today we're looking at Dean Coral, who had earned the nickname The Candyman. Not only for running a candy company, but also for giving out free candy to any and all of the neighborhood children. An act that would haunt Texas when Dean Coral later became known as the Candyman Killer. Part 1. The Birth of the Candyman The world is full of monsters with friendly faces. Zach Brewer Dean Arnold Coral was born on December 24, 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana to his overprotective mother, Mary Robinson, and father, Arnold Coral who would go on to make it clear he never wanted children. To say Dean Coral had a difficult childhood would be an understatement. It was a childhood marred with constantly relocating, family infighting, and a debilitating disease. By the time Dean Coral was three years old, he now had a new brother, Stanley. But the frequent fighting of his parents led to a fractured family and soon divorce in 1946. After Arnold Coral was drafted into the military, Mary moved the remaining family to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee. Now being the sole provider, she would often leave the two boys with an elderly couple and other babysitters while she attempted to find work. By 1950, the two boys had developed almost entirely different personalities. Where Stanley was outgoing, friendly, and could be found playing with the other children, his brother Dean was quiet, described as a loner, and often chose to stay inside. Maybe it was the constant illnesses Dean came down with that kept him out of the spotlight, one of which was later realized to have been rheumatic fever causing permanent damage to his heart. At just 11 years old, he was diagnosed with a heart murmur. Yet, this didn't deter Dean from pursuing other interests. He developed a fondness for music, taking up the trombone in the school band. Meanwhile, his teachers remarked how polite and quiet he appeared to be. At home, his father had come back into the picture, remarrying Mary in 1950 and moving the family to Pasadena, Texas. Unfortunately, it didn't last. In 1953, Arnold and Mary divorced again and Mary moved the family to the small town of Vidor, Texas. There, she met and married Jake West, a traveling salesman with aspirations of opening his own business. And in 1955, he did just that, starting a small candy company out of the garage of the home, making it a family affair. And the family itself grew as Jake and Mary welcomed a new daughter that same year. The foundation of a happy childhood appeared to be coming into place. Dean had become an integral part of the family and business 
he took on the protective role of his younger siblings, reflecting his mother, and did everything he could for the business, working every moment he wasn't in school to help the family flourish. Part of his marketing campaign was giving out free samples of candy to the neighborhood children, earning him the nickname, The Candyman. The nickname at the time reflected the generosity of the sweet teenage boy who watched over his siblings, performed well in school, and took his job seriously. No one could have imagined, in just a little over a decade's time, the Candyman would rot from within. In 1958, the family moved yet again, to Houston, Texas, but this time, the move was predicated on good news. After the growing success of the garage candy business, the family was able to open an actual storefront, naming it Pecan Prince. Dean was so dedicated to the growing success of the shop, he moved out of the family home in 1962 just to move into an apartment directly above the store. But in 1963, the family was having its own problems at home. Dean's mother, Mary, and stepfather Jake had grown apart, fighting over the business and leading them to divorce. Luckily for Dean, Mary kept the candy shop, appointing him vice president, essentially putting him in charge of the whole operation. Unluckily for the teenage employees of the candy shop, Dean's shell began to crack, revealing pieces of the monster he truly was inside. On one of Mary's visits to the store, one of the teenage male employees complained to her about several instances where Dean sexually harassed him. The teenager possibly hoped Mary would do the right thing. Instead, she fired the teen and never brought it up with Dean. A year later, in 1964, Dean was drafted into the military, but returned with an honorable discharge 10 months later under the pretense of needing to help in the family business. But the man who came back seemed different, more attuned to the evil he was becoming. The Coral Candy Company had moved across the street from an elementary school, and Dean heavily played into his Candyman moniker, giving out plenty of candy daily to the children, in particular teenage boys. Rumors began to swirl of Dean being flirtatious with the teenagers who hung out and worked in the candy shop. Unfortunately, the rumors were true. In 1967, 12-year-old David Brooks walked into the candy shop, possibly tempted by the stories of free candy and the prospect of hanging out with the other kids at the pool tables that were installed at the back of the shop. Like Dean, David was a child coming from a broken home. His parents had divorced years prior, which meant David traveled a lot between the city of Beaumont, where his mother lived, and Houston, where his father and Dean lived. After meeting the Candyman, David immediately befriended him. Over the next year, Dean took advantage of David's situation, offering his own apartment as a place where David could stay whenever he wanted to get away from his father. Dean gave him free access to all the candy he wanted. Anything in his apartment, rides on his motorcycle, brought him on trips to the beach, and even gave David money on regular occasions. But eventually, Dean began to ask for sexual favors in return, something the teenager, having been groomed over the last year, would not say no to. Around the same time the candy company closed, Dean's mother moved to Colorado and Dean started a job working for a Houston Lighting and Power Company giving him access to a new form of criminality, burglarizing homes, paying David to be an accomplice. Many of the homes they robbed were located in Houston Heights, at the time a low-income neighborhood, and the reports of missing items may have warranted a much greater response from authorities if the Heights hadn't been dealing with a much bigger problem, missing children. By May of 1971, five teenage boys had disappeared in that year alone. One of the teenage boys helping with the search effort was the 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, who had been lifelong friends with one of the missing boys. 
As David Brooks often spent time in the neighborhood, he eventually bumped into Elmer, becoming fast friends with him. In the winter of 1971, when Elmer revealed to David his family was having financial difficulties, David had the idea to bring him to meet Dean, possibly to have him join their breaking and entering crew. Elmer and Dean hit it off, and the three were soon inseparable. Elmer became a frequent visitor to Dean's apartment, bringing other friends to join in on so-called parties, where the main draw was sniffing glue and paint, along with drinking alcohol supplied by Dean. Although Elmer wasn't involved in sexual acts with Dean, he did assist in and was paid for burglarizing several addresses. With the three growing closer through their acts of crime, Dean at one point felt the need to find out how much he could trust Elmer, turning to him and asking if he would be willing to kill a person if required. Elmer looked into Dean's eyes and said yes. Two years later, in 1973, Elmer Wayne Henley sat in the back of a police car, having just shot and killed Dean Coral. Part 2. Too Far Gone Sometimes, monsters are made, not born. Seanan McGuire On September 25, 1970, 18-year-old University of Texas student Jeffrey Conan was making his way home to Houston, hitchhiking his way there. Something that today may seem out of the ordinary, or considered dangerous, but back in the 60s and 70s, hitchhiking was much more common, especially for college students without a vehicle looking to get home. After being dropped off at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road in Houston, Jeffrey now needed only one more courteous driver to get him home to his parents. That was when Dean Coral pulled up, offering that last ride. It was the last time anyone would see Jeffrey Conan alive. Police were led to his body three years later by David Brooks, who knew all of Dean's dark secrets. How David became tangled in Dean's murderous web started in December of 1970, just two months after Dean killed Jeffrey Conan by strangulation. At some point in December, David walked into Dean's home unannounced, as he did on most days. But this time, he found him naked with two boys, each strapped onto a plywood table. David immediately recognized them, 14-year-old Danny Yates and 15-year-old James Glass. Both had been brought to Dean's home by David for parties in the past, but instead of getting them help or trying to save the boys, David kept quiet, and Dean bought him a new car in return. Danny Yates and James Glass were both raped and murdered. David then helped Dean bury both of them in a boat shed Dean had rented out several months prior. This would then start a new vile phase in their relationship. Instead of just helping him burglarize homes, Dean paid David $200 for every boy he brought him. On January 30th, 1971, David helped Dean kidnap 13 and 15-year-old brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop. David was paid his $400 and left them with Dean to be raped and murdered. He only returned later to help bury the bodies. From March to August, teenagers Randall Harvey, Gregory Winkle, Reuben Watson, and David Hillegeist were all taken by Dean with David's assistance. Hillegeist being the friend Elmer Henley was looking for when he first met David. After Elmer was introduced to Dean, he was adamant at not assisting with the kidnappings, happy with simply being paid to burglarize homes. But after his family's financial situation worsened, he agreed to help kidnap teenagers for Dean. Elmer was told the kidnappings were for a white slave sex ring and was not told about the murders. Believing this lie, in February of 1972, he helped abduct 17-year-old Willard Branch. The three then worked together to convince 18-year-old Frank Aguirre 
to show up to Dean Kroll's apartment for a party with drugs and alcohol. After he arrived, Frank was handcuffed and left alone with Dean. Later that same night, Elmer returned to Dean's apartment, finding him torturing and sexually assaulting Frank. Elmer questioned his actions, leading Dean to lose his temper. In a rage, admitting to him he had also tortured, raped, and murdered Willard Branch. Elmer and David then helped Dean bury Frank's body. The revelation of Dean's murderous actions did little to stop Elmer from assisting. In fact, it made the trio more dangerous. David Brooks will later tell police that after Frank's murder, Elmer became more sadistic, something that would be evident soon enough. The trio's next target was 17-year-old Mark Scott on April 20, 1972. Mark had been taken by force as he put up a fight against the three, ending when Elmer pointed a gun at him, threatening to kill him on the spot. On May 21st, they kidnapped 16- and 17-year-old Johnny DeLone and Billy Bulch. After Dean had raped both teens, Elmer took it upon himself to strangle Billy and shoot Johnny in the head. By the end of the year, they had killed four more victims, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, 14-year-old Wally J. Simino, 13-year-old Richard Hembry, and 19-year-old Richard Kepner. On February 1st, Dean Corll killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles before suffering an injury that prevented him from attacking and killing any more teens for several months. But on June 4th, the trio rejoined to hunt for more victims. Elmer later stated Dean's demeanor after his injury was one of bloodlust. From June 4th to July 12th, the three killed another four, 15-year-olds Billy Ray Lawrence and Homer Garcia, 17-year-old John Sellers, and 20-year-old Ray Blackburn, who was hitchhiking on his way to see his newborn child. After these victims, David Brooks temporarily stopped helping Dean and Elmer, not because of any moral reason. He stopped so he could marry his pregnant fiance, living out a part of life that his victims could never have. During David's absence, Elmer and Dean kidnapped three more victims, 15-year-old Michael Balch, who was the younger brother of Billy Balch, Dean's previous victim, 18-year-old Marty Jones, and 17-year-old Charles Cobble, whose wife was pregnant at the time of his murder. On August 3, 1973, David returned to the group in time to help trick 13-year-old James Dreamala to enter Dean's apartment and become another victim. It was the early morning of August 8, 1973, around 3 a.m., when Elmer arrived at Dean's apartment with two more soon-to-be victims, 19-year-old Tim Curley and 15-year-old Rhonda Williams. Both had been convinced by Elmer to join him for a drug and alcohol party at Dean's apartment. Dean became furious when he saw Elmer brought a girl to the apartment, telling him he had, quote, ruined everything. After a little while, Elmer was able to calm Dean down enough to let them all stay and begin sniffing paint and drinking. At around 5 a.m., Elmer, Rhonda, and Tim all passed out. Three hours later, Elmer awoke, handcuffed and ankles bound. Looking over at Rhonda and Tim, they had both been tied up with rope and gagged. Tim had also been stripped naked. Confused and panicked, Elmer looked around for Dean, who came out of a room waving a gun around, reiterating his anger at Elmer for having brought a girl. He then announced he would rape Tim before killing all three. Somehow, Elmer was able to calm Dean down again. Then, he made him a deal. Dean could rape and kill Tim, and Elmer would do the same to Rhonda. He would then help in disposing of the bodies. Dean agreed and freed Elmer from his handcuffs. Both then dragged Rhonda and Tim into Dean's bedroom, strapping them onto the plywood tables to begin their assault. Dean gave a knife to Elmer so he could cut off Rhonda's clothes, but as he was doing so, she woke up. Scared and confused, she could only ask, is this for real? Elmer replied, 
Yes. Rhonda begged and pleaded for her life, asking Elmer to do something. And somehow, she got through to the monster. Elmer stood up, taking the gun Dean had been waving around previously and aimed it directly at him, shouting at him to stop. Dean was furious. Raising up, he egged Elmer on to kill him, taunting him, daring him to shoot as he approached him. Just a few steps away from him, Elmer fired, the first shot hitting him in the forehead. Dean lurched forward. The next two shots hit him in the shoulder. Dean's body turned as three more shots entered his lower back. His body hit the wall, falling lifelessly down onto the ground. Elmer untied Rhonda and Tim, trying to have them all leave together and keep the incident a secret. But Tim was able to convince him to call the police instead. The three then went out to the porch to wait for them. As they sat there, Elmer turned to Tim and said, I could have gotten $200. Part 3. A Negligent Investigation To ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. Martin Luther King Jr. When the police entered 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena, they found exactly what the teen outside had told them. A naked and dead Dean Coral shot six times, and then that was the extent of their initial investigation. The officers went back outside, read Elmer his Miranda rights, and brought him to the precinct for questioning. Elmer was at wit's end. He didn't care who knew what he had done. He admitted to the police what atrocities Dean, David, and himself had committed over the last three years, but the police didn't want to believe. Not wanting to believe something more sinister was going on in the Houston Heights neighborhood was a common trait the police displayed over the last three years. Anytime another teen went missing, the families launched searches for them, rallied the neighborhood to help, and called the police. Their response always amounted to, the boy simply ran away. When one heartbroken mother pointed out her son went missing with nothing but a bathing suit and a few cents in change, the police simply responded with, children run away all the time. The chief of the Houston Police Department at the time cited running away from home wasn't a crime and therefore claimed there was nothing the police could do. It also didn't help when Dean and his gang would mail fake letters to the parents supposedly written by the teens saying they had found a job somewhere and weren't coming home. The few times they did this, the parents were able to see through the facade. Handwriting didn't match. Words the kids didn't know were spelled perfectly. Yet the police took this as cries of desperate parents. So when Elmer Wayne Henley confessed to his crimes, the police attempted to ignore it. They believed the death of Dean Coral was just an accident that happened after a group partied too hard. But Elmer was insistent. He started to name the missing kids and even offered to take them to their bodies. Finally, the police decided to take the claim seriously. They sent an officer to ask David Brooks to come in for questioning and sent several more officers to the home of Dean Coral to investigate. In searching, they found the plywood torture tables, nylon straps, handcuffs, sex toys, and thick plastic sheeting. In the backyard, they found a wooden crate with several air holes drilled into it. Inside, they found strands of human hair. Elmer then took the police to Dean's boat shed, where even more evidence was found. Bags of lime, children's clothing, and a bike belonging to one of the missing children. And then, Elmer pointed to where the children were buried. The police found eight bodies that day. Each had been covered in plastic sheeting, and each had evidence of sexual abuse and torture. Back at the police station, David Brooks and his father arrived, denying everything except having knowledge that Dean Coral raped and killed two boys in 1970. The following day, as Elmer led police to another 11 bodies, two in Lake Sam Rayburn, and nine more at the boat shed, David returned to the police station and finally confessed. He still claimed to not have murdered anyone himself. On August 10th, 
Elmer brought police to two more bodies at the lake, and later with David, at High Island Beach, led police to two bodies. On August 13th, Elmer and David again returned to High Island Beach with police to find another four bodies. The total was now 27, the worst mass murder spree in American history at the time. And then, police called off the search for more bodies. Elmer and David insisted there were more bodies buried in the boat shed and the beach, but the police refused to search. Many believed the bad publicity made the police want to stop. Others believed it was either because they didn't believe the two, or because they didn't believe they would find more bodies. They were wrong. In 1983, another body later linked to Dean Coral was found. Apart from that, with the first 27 bodies, an arm bone and a pelvis bone, were found buried with them, not belonging to any of the 27, meaning there are still more victims. 42 teens went missing from 1970 to 1973 in the Houston Heights area. 28 were victims of Dean, David, and Elmer. There's also reason to believe Dean had begun killing prior to 1970. During his time as the vice president of the candy company, some employees claimed to have seen Dean cementing over holes. He claimed he was just burying spoiled candy. In October of 1973, David Brooks was charged with four counts of murder, and Elmer Wayne Henley was charged with six counts. His killing of Dean Coral was ruled self-defense. Both teens pleaded not guilty. Both were found guilty. Elmer was sentenced to six consecutive life terms in 1974, but in 1978, following an appeal, his conviction was overturned. In 1979, he was retried and once again convicted, sentenced to the same six consecutive life terms. Since then, he has been denied multiple attempts at being paroled. His next parole date is scheduled October 2025. David Brooks was sentenced to life in prison in 1975. He died of COVID-19 in May of 2020. Dean Coral was thought by many to be a friendly and kind man, but behind his giving personality of a candy man lived a terrible monster that infected and recruited two teens to help him fulfill his murderous fantasies. The three were responsible for at least 28 deaths. The families of 28 helplessly had to endure the pain of knowing their children would never come back, taken by someone they trusted. In August of 2021, a nonprofit search and rescue group called Texas EcuSearch announced they will be working with the Pasadena Police Department using updated tools to search for any more buried victims of Dean, David, and Elmer. We'll be keeping an eye on any updates and posting them over on our Instagram at MythsMysteriesMonsters. Although nothing can change the evil man and two teens unleashed on a neighborhood, hopefully this group and the police can help bring closure for some families still missing their boys. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Myths, Mysteries, and Monsters. My name is Hector. Script and research is done by E.L. Soto. Sources are in the show notes for further reading. If there's a myth, mystery, or monster you'd like us to cover, send us an email at mythmysteriesmonsters at gmail.com. Consider leaving us a rating, a review, or subscribe for more. And remember, always look behind you.